The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. Now presenting the documentary feature, Pamela, A Love Story. From award-winning director Ryan White, the LA Times says, director Ryan White's documentary lets Pamela Anderson retell her story in her own words with her own focus. Emmy nominated for Outstanding Documentary or Nonfiction Special. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking to James Adolphus, the director of Being Mary Tyler Moore. Being Mary Tyler Moore chronicles the screen icon whose storied career spanned 60 years, weaving Moore's personal narrative with beats of her professional accomplishments. The film highlights her groundbreaking roles and the indelible impact she had on generations of women who came after her. Being Mary Tyler Moore had its world premiere at the 2023 South by Southwest Film Festival. It also screened at the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival, which makes sense given the Mary Tyler Moore Show, and SF Film. James Adolphus's credits include Soul of a Nation, Little White Lie, You Ain't Got These, and the forthcoming Gifted and Black. A graduate of AFI and a recipient of the Fisher Fellow Scholarship, James is a two-time Emmy and a three-time Peabody Award winner. I came to this film with a lot of anticipation because I am a huge Mary Tyler Moore fan, going back to when I was growing up and I used to watch the show with my parents every Saturday night. It's a show that I just really connected with, and I guess it was a bonding experience for the family. I was also really eager to talk to James about his approach to the topic and what's remarkable is he had never seen any episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show, the Dick Van Dyke show. He had not seen ordinary people. So his whole approach to the material was basically as a research project. And while that's surprising, I actually think it really worked. And I think you'll find it interesting to hear him talk about his process in our interview. Being Mary Tyler Moore is now streaming on Max. As usual, if you like this interview, please follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell a friend. Also, please follow us on Instagram at TopDocsPod and on Twitter, aka X, also at TopDocsPod. And now my conversation with James Adolphus, the director of Being Mary Tyler Moore. James Adolphus, welcome to Top Docs. And thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Absolutely. I will confess that I am a huge Mary Tyler Moore fan. I did grow up with her and I think she had a pretty profound impact on me and I thoroughly enjoyed the film and your approach to it. Thank you. Is it weird though that as the filmmaker of this project, I had no Mary Tyler Moore background before jumping into this? It's definitely an interesting fact. So tell us how it is that you came to this project and also what was that job interview like where you revealed that you maybe had not grown up on the Dick Van Dyke show, the Mary Tyler Moore show, and so on? I think being Mary Tyler Moore has a really fun origin story, and it doesn't start with me. It actually starts with Mary's widowed husband, Dr. Robert Levine, who for years had been fielding requests for the keys to the estate 
And because it is surprising that it's taken this long for a documentary about Meredith Tullenmore to surface. And I think for Robert, he was terrified after Mary passed away that the wrong team of filmmakers would come in and make like a proficient documentary that wouldn't allow Mary's enormous legacy to remain relevant to future generations of folks. So he kept saying no to folks. And one day by chance, he's at home and he's flipping through the pages of Vanity Fair and Lena Waithe is on the cover of Vanity Fair. And Annie Leibovitz does this photo spread. And within that photo spread, in one of the images, Lena is watching the Mary Tyler Moore show at home. And in the piece, Lena expresses her love and admiration for Mary and how profound and impactful Mary's life and specifically Mary's show or namesake show has been for Lena coming up as a writer in Hollywood. And she also said that if she ever has the opportunity, she would love to make a scripted film about Mary Tyler Moore. Now, Robert is at home and his mind explodes on some level because for him, he knew Mary had a massive impact on women in this country, but he didn't think that Mary would also have a tremendous impact on a black queer woman from the South side of Chicago. So he got on the phone and had his people call Lena's people and fairly quickly Lena's on an airplane and she's flying out to Greenwich, Connecticut to meet him at the estate. When she's at the estate, the estate very much feels like Mary's home, that not a single thing in the house has changed since her passing. And Lena was able to walk in that space and touch Mary's life, like physically touch things that were Mary's. She wanted Mary's, you know, her legion of fans to have a similar experience. And she didn't think they would have the same experience in a scripted film. She thought it had to be a documentary so that they too could feel immersed in Mary's life the way she felt immersed in her life. And by chance, I was making a documentary series with Lena for the ill-fated Quibi network. The project was called You Ain't Got These. And it was on the documentary series about sneaker culture. And Lena called me up. And it was like, hey, you're doing great things on the You Ain't Got These. I want to throw something at you. What do you think about directing a film about Mary Tyler Moore? And I was like, of course, absolutely. But I don't know anything about the woman. I've never seen a single episode, anything she's ever done. And I hadn't even yet told Lena that, you know, undergrad and graduate film school, I hadn't seen ordinary people. Don't ask me how it's happened, but it did happen. And that didn't phase her at all. I think on some level, you know, she might have taken a second to process that information, but she liked the idea of me coming in totally objective, that maybe I might become a fan of Mary in the process of telling her story. So she just asked if I would like, you know, do the thorough deep dive that I do on every other project that I attach myself to. And I was like, yeah, of course. She's like, and you'll be sensitive and empathetic like you are. Yes, of course. Okay, then let's go. Let's do it. And it wasn't just that straightforward. I still had to meet with Dr. Robert Levine and Deborah Martin Chase, one of the other producers on the film, also needed to vet me out. After a number of very long conversations, the team felt like I was the right choice. And I honestly had to trust them more than myself because even though I felt a very confident, I think of myself as a confident filmmaker, I still thought that maybe hiring a man to direct a film about one of the most prolific women in Hollywood history was... Yeah, maybe a mistake. Over time, how did you come to realize that you could do justice to the story, to Mary's life, to her career, to her art, while also, as a man, fully embracing this as a woman's story? 
Great question. You're the first person to actually ask me that, and I'm glad I get a chance to finally answer it. I didn't start this project with Mary's body of work. I started with her autobiography, and I read that a few times. I like writing notes in the margins. After a few passes of the book, even the first pass, like I was able to identify a lot with Mary. Just I am Puerto Rican and black. So I understand what it means to go up against the patriarchy and what it means to try and break through glass ceilings that are set for you. There are expectations that were set for Mary as a woman who was born in 1936, who was coming of age in the 1950s. You know, there was a, for many women in this country, there's a predetermined future for Mary that didn't necessarily fit into what her dreams were. And that was, for me, it was really easy to identify with. But how to communicate that in the film was more of a challenge initially because I wanted to find a way into her storytelling that was represented on the screen that made sense for me, for a man. And I think we got really lucky because we were only a couple months into the edit where Mariah Remet, the film's editor, we would just watch, we assembled every interview we could find Mary ever gave in her life. And we weren't watching them in order, of course, because the archival process, like nothing falls into your lap in order. But two months in, three months in, we came across the David Susskind interview. And even though like I loved how Mary owned the moment when she sat with them, it always pained me that she had to own the moment that it's 1966 and she's fresh off the Dick Van Dyke show. She's one of the most famous people in the country and she still has to deal with this form of misogyny and chauvinism. I just found it really disgusting because at this point I had fallen in love with the woman who was represented within the pages of the book. And I was like, she doesn't deserve this, but no one deserves this. I know that Lena Waithe has had to deal with that. Deborah Mark Chase has had to deal with that. I have had to deal with that. And in that moment, it sort of crystallized. Like David Susskind provided a way for me to begin to talk about Mary's life and legacy. Because even though it's not really explicit in the film, it was, at least for us as filmmakers, we understood what our compass aimed to be. And when we found Susskind, it made it very clear that we could start Mary's story, start with the brilliance and the strength of this woman everyone knows and loves. David Susskind, unfortunately, just he becomes a symbol for American patriarchy, he becomes a symbol for not just what Mary, but all women in this country have had to deal with since its inception. But what a beautiful representation of strength and grace and elegance and how she spat back against David Susskind. I love it when, you know, I'm doing these interviews and I feel like there's an immediate mind meld because my first question is about that clip from the David Susskind show. You keep coming back to this interview and you also keep coming back to an equally fantastic interview that she did around 1981 with Rona Barrett. Just as a quick background, it is a clip from the David Susskind show from 1966, which is the last year of the Dick Van Dyke show. I presume the show maybe had just ended its run. Mary had become famous through her portrayal of Laura Petrie, who's married to Dick Van Dyke's character, Rob Petrie. She had kind of become America's darling. This clip is fascinating on many levels, but he is definitely a symbol of the patriarchy and he's an expression of it. But what I also found interesting is that 
he is an articulation of an argument. It's an argument that's deeply flawed, but it's not just that he's saying something sexist. He's actually making an argument for sexism in that context of 1966. And as you indicate, she more than holds her own. She pushes back and with the inimitable grace and humor of Mary Tyler Moore, the person and the actor, she wins the day, I would say. Susskind later in the interview really pushes her about working women shortchanging their kids. She's not buying that. And she's saying that women can, and in fact, should, certainly if they want to, have a career as well as be wives and mothers. Almost inadvertently, he steps into a reality that you show through other interviews, which is that, in fact, she did struggle with this issue of balancing her life as an actor and a celebrity with being a mom, and that her relationship with her son was a little bit fraught in the sense that perhaps not so much the time to spend with him, but she didn't have the opportunity to connect with him on his level. That's right. So my question is, how did you as the filmmaker reach into almost like a time travel, reach into these older interviews, be they from 1966 or 1981, and pull out the arguments, and then through your own research process, build a case for how Mary's life and her career as a whole kind of respond to those inquiries? Having both David Susskind and Rona Barrett, those interviews, or this film is, was like, was just a wonderful stroke of luck because the argument, the conversation that David Susskind steps into and the revelations that are expressed in the Rona Barrett interview, all of that is in Mary's book. She reveals herself in the book in the way she never did as the woman when she was still with us. And it was very clear that when Mary set out to become an actor and a dancer, having her son when she was 19 years old, she assumed that she could, air quotes, have it all. But I think fundamentally, it's a flawed question in itself. The idea that any of us can have it all, I find impossible. David Susskind is tragic in a lot of ways because he never asked of himself, he had his own children, if being David Susskind and growing his career materially pulled, you know, took away from his own children's lives. And I would have to argue it does. In the four years it took us to make being Mary Tyler Moore, I sacrificed two full basketball seasons. My son lives in Texas. And if I wasn't otherwise directing, I would have spent a lot more time with them while I was engaged in filmmaking. But as a director, that was impossible for me. I think Susskind missed the point. And I know that there is this part of me that assumed that I too could have it all. And if for any other reason, and I never really thought this as a black person, but as like a man, yes, I could have a career and I could be a family man. And I absolutely love being a father. It's my absolute favorite job on the planet. My son is in the back room. He's 14. I'd live for this. But I also find it really painful that I haven't been able to give him and myself the same time that I had before embarking on this journey. I think it's so painful to have watched Mary throughout her life 
try to measure the success of her life against an impossible metric. The metric of, can I have it all? Should I have it all? Did I have it all? And I, I just empathize with that so much. When we discovered the Rona Barrett interview, like I feel really grateful to Rona because as an air quotes tabloid journalist, Rona was unafraid to ask certain questions of Mary Tyler Moore. I think lots of journalists would never have because it was you know, it might be improper to do that of a woman of her status. But Mary, on some level, it also felt like she wanted to answer those questions. You know, in her interview, she never hesitates. She never spends any time trying to navigate her way out of an answer. And this is the reality. When you're in your early 20s, you have the world at your fingertips. You think you're invincible and you think you can do everything. But we can't. We always, at some point in our life, sacrifice something for our dreams. And that reality, something Mary struggled with for the rest of her life. And it was exacerbated, of course, because her son in an accident lost his life. And within the pages of Mary's book and the film, you know, I guess it does its best to portray that weight that she carried with her for the rest of her life. But it's there. And for me, I hate that we still, we measure ourselves against this metric, that in America, you're supposed to have it all. And if you don't have it all, you failed. I think it's a, it's a gross question that all of us as citizens of this country grapple with regularly. I think it's undeniable that David Susskind is applying some kind of filter to Mary Tyler Moore, some kind of preconceived idea of what she should or shouldn't be doing to the interview. And that's, to me, the arrogance of David Susskind. And yeah, Rona has a, a different kind of arrogance, perhaps, but it's much more empathetic, I think, with Mary and her life. So late in the film, there's a quote from Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who says about Mary and her career, her morphing from Laura Petrie to Mary Tyler Moore was such a feminist statement. And I think that for me, perhaps the most profound contribution that Mary made to television and to the culture is in that space between her portrayal of Laura Petrie on The Dick Van Dyke Show and her portrayal of Mary Richards on The Mary Tyler Moore Show. And I want to go back to The Dick Van Dyke Show to ask you when you went back as part of your process to look at those episodes, what struck you about Mary's character, her performance, and what it represented in that era? The film obviously makes the point that one of the earliest decisions Mary made when she joined that cast, that band of characters on the Dick Van Dyke show was that she would wear capri pants when doing house chores because no one is vacuuming and those frilly dresses that were part and parcel of every sitcom on television in the 50s and 60s. That detail that's in the film is it's one of many that did exist in real life that we couldn't include. You know, we included that, but not others. When Mary joined the project, the show wasn't written for her. She wasn't supposed to be a comedian. She's not supposed to be funny because women, with few exceptions, Lucille Ball being a more prominent one, women were known for being funny. And even Lucy still had to resort to more slapstick comedy. Carl Reiner was eight episodes in to The Dick Van Dyke Show when My Blonde-Haired Brunette was taped. And it, only at that moment did it dawn on all of them that she was funny, that women could be funny, not just funny, but like talented. This is the other thing. Yes, we all know Mary as this crazy talented individual, but I dare say that 
there was a ping in her voice that Carl Reiner was attracted to, but I don't believe that in the three lines that she said during her audition, she was able to put on display her vast array of talents. So they were eight episodes into taping when like, they discovered that she was crazy talented and hilarious. They had to go back and rewrite all of those other episodes and reshoot them. She was just quite phenomenal. The other thing was Mary's one of the first women on television in that era who had her own opinions, that she would bite back. She wasn't there just to be the punchline of a joke or to help set up a punchline of a joke. She was a woman who felt like she was on damn near equal footing as her husband. And even though they slept in separate beds, there was a chemistry to Mary and Dick that was also fresh on television that era. Yeah, they slept in separate beds, but everyone believed that they had sex. There was no world in which people thought that Mary and Dick were not actually, you know, husband and wife. That we make light of that in the film, and they do too, and the variety show that they're on, that was hard for them to check into hotels with their actual spouses because folks thought they were truly a married couple on TV. It feels in 2023 eyes so insignificant, except that none of that existed on television and that era. Just, it's so easy to take for granted today. It is. And I think one of the things also that I take from that show, because I've recently, you know, in the last six months or so, I've watched a whole bunch of Dick Van Dyke episodes. I didn't know we were going to be doing this interview, but I've watched that show recently and First of all, it's a really good show, and I think it holds up well in many ways. In other ways, not so much, but what it shows is that it shows both the possibilities and the limitations of what you can do on television in terms of expectations around gender roles. So when you get to the Mary Tyler Moore show, and there's a section in your film where there's various critiques of the show most pointedly from Gloria Steinem. But I think, again, it's the same issue. It's a different show. It's a different era. We're talking 1970 to 1977 for the Mary Tyler Moore show. But it's broadcast television. It's television, as James Burroughs, the director, I think, says, it's for 40 million people. And so you can see what they're able to accomplish that's new and pathbreaking, but also what the limitations are. So my question is, when you moved in your research from the Dick Van Dyke show to the Mary Tyler Moore show, what stood out to you about what they were able to do on that show versus some of the things that maybe they were being criticized for? Well, I'll start off by saying, even with 2023 eyes, I still think some of the critique that they faced while they're making that show, and maybe it's because I work in the business, I understand that... It is very difficult to please everybody. It's impossible. But also, it's too easy to take for granted how many homes the Mary Tyler Moore show was in in the 1970s. And the line in the film where, you know, on any given Saturday, Mary was watched in 40 million homes, those Nielsen devices are representing households. There are multiple people in those homes. Mary was actually reaching 70, 80, 90 million people every Saturday night in this country. Yes, on um, you know, anywhere, on every streamer, everywhere you look, there are versions of Mary Tyler Moore. It's like, it's normal. An independent woman living on her own, working, being a professional. What's so special about that? Nothing in 2023, but in 1970, when you're the first, 
and 90 million people are watching this, half of them are women, that's profound. That act alone literally changed the shape of this country. Two generations later, there's no turning back. It's painful and sad that this film is premiering at a moment when women's rights are totally under fire and under attack, that this country is trying as hard as it can to roll back the clock decades. I think the first episode of the Mary Tyler Moore show is genius, and it was written by a couple of dudes. I know that over the seven years, the Mary Tyler Moore show would hire more women writers than any other show ever in the history of TV, and they still have some of the records. 26 and all women wrote on that show, a couple of them winning some very big trophies, Treva Silverman being one of them. She's the first woman to win her own Emmy Award and comedic writing on a sitcom. That's not insignificant. It's not insignificant that when the pilot episode wasn't working, a woman, a script supervisor, jumped in and fixed it for the guys. It wasn't insignificant that Susan Silver, Truva Silverman, are there to add color to this world that men had no access to. But it all seems trivial in 2023. But then it, it wasn't. You know, it was remarkable. And remarkable in that I understand as like an activist. When it's 2020, I was out in the streets protesting with the rest of Americans protesting against police brutality and violence. I got shot in the back by the LAPD. And I hate that the needle of change sometimes moves so damn slow. But the impact of the Mary Tyler Moore show, yeah, I get in 1970, you want it to go much further. You want the show to scream as loud as it can against American patriarchy. But if you scream too loud, no one's going to listen. And the show couldn't do that. It had to be a little bit more subversive than that, I think. And, and even though it, it still felt like at the time that the show wasn't pushing the needle far enough, every man I talked about this morning, every dude who reviewed that show when it premiered hated it, hated everything that the show represented. You know, on the one hand, it's like, oh, it wasn't going far enough. It didn't have to go just... It went too far the moment it had a single woman out in the world who wasn't interested in getting married and who was chasing her career. That premise in itself was taking things too far. That was the revolution. And I know it didn't necessarily feel like that at the time, even for Gloria. But decades later, even in interviews, Gloria has reframed her own perspective. She was also a young person when she was saying these things. And when we're young, yeah, we want change now, yesterday. And with decades of wisdom, you look back and you go, oh, that had a much larger impact and profound impact to unknown quantities. It was having that then, it was seeded then, and you can see the net result of it today. So it's not just Julia Louis-Dreyfus, it's Oprah Winfrey, it's Michelle Obama, Katie Couric, it's everyone. The numbers of folks now who I've sat with at film festivals, after screenings, who are like, I am who I am because of that show. It's funny because with the Michelle Obamas and the Julie Louis-Dreyfus's of the world, you go, oh yeah, that makes sense. Mary was so significant and you are so significant. And I could see that correlation, but we don't get to see our literal millions of women who are like, yeah, I would never have just worked if it wasn't for Mary, if I didn't see that image on TV first. That was it. I saw someone else doing it and I was like, oh, I can, it's like a range of careers from politics, to science, to, to the arts. Yeah. I, I would say something else was happening too, because I grew up watching that show, sitting on the living room floor, watching the family TV with my parents. 
I have to say later, I realized my mom was born about seven years before Mary. And I don't think my mom really was given, I know she wasn't, given the opportunities to live out a truly fulfilling career life because the cultural limitations were pretty profound and real. And so as somebody watching that show, at some point you see the distance between what Mary is portraying on TV and later what you know about the actual person, Mary Tyler Moore, and what you see going on in your own household and the limitations put on generations of women. So I think that also probably impacted people pretty profoundly is especially women, but also men, which is just, it's not fair. It's not right what our mothers, grandmothers, whoever, were completely artificially limited by. So just the cascading effects of the Mary Tyler Moore show are just, it's a multiplier effect. You are right. I wanted to ask about the space between Mary Tyler Moore as she's portraying Mary Richards and Mary Tyler Moore, the person. I mean, your film is called Being Mary Tyler Moore. And I think that has multiple layers of meaning to it, but especially through the Rona Barrett interview, but also throughout the film, you're exploring this question of how much of Mary Tyler Moore, the person is embedded in Mary Richards, the character she played, and where are the points of departure? How did you go about just wrapping your head around those differences and similarities? Well, initially, and I think Mary offers the blueprint in her book, that again, I'll forever be like grateful to Rona Barrett. But Mary herself in her book was like very super astute. She recognized that she embodied more on some level the spirit of Laura Petri in her first two marriages than she did Mary Richards. And she understood that even when she was playing Mary Richards, that was still more aspirational. She was married the entire time while she was playing this role to Grant Tinker. It was an aspirational version of Mary. She wouldn't actually come into until a few years after the Mary Tyler Moore show was off the air. I love that it's when we see characters on TV or in cinema, we just assume that the actors who are portraying them are that in real life. I think that Mary was right that she had most of her characters and you were written with her in mind. And all those characters, like I also see this part of Mary, and maybe it's just because I feel like I know her at this point, that still feels contained. The version of Mary that shows up in Rona Barrett is very different than both Laura Petrie and Mary Richards. Mary Tyler Moore and Rona Barrett felt free and... Mary Richards was forever searching. And Laura Petrie seemed trapped within the system. I think for Mary to get to where she landed in life with both of the Mary Tyler Moore show and the Dick Van Dyke show, I think she understood that it would have been a lot more challenging for her to get there on her own. I find this part about Mary and her reliance on men actually to be quite brilliant. She's not ashamed to say that she enjoyed being married. She wanted to be married and she enjoyed the fact that she can act she was able to perform and didn't have to deal with a business. Grant Tinker ran a business and did that thing for her. She didn't want to do that thing. She didn't want to be the independent woman yet. I like that Mary worked within the strictures of patriarchy to get ahead. That on some level, she was able to take some control over the patriarchy and almost use it against itself. But 
where you have your knight in shining armor, Grant Tinker, who wants to show up and build the empire for you. She's like, yeah, okay, yeah, go for it. This is the thing I've been trying to do, and now you're going to do this thing for me. When I've amassed enough wealth, when I've reached this pinnacle, like, and our relationship has now run its course, we'll move on from each other. I couldn't have wrote a better sequence when both Grant Tinker in an interview and Mary Tyler Moore in an interview, when they describe meeting and getting married, neither one of them describe their relationship as love at first sight. Grant says it's love at first meeting. There's a formality to their relationship that seems really subtle if you're not paying attention, but it felt very formal to me. It felt like a, not necessarily a marriage of convenience, but it was a strategically matched pairing that was beneficial, like at a business level, more so than it was at a romantic level. I don't really think Mary found real love until, and I know she shared love with Grant, but what she shared with Robert was free. And she met Robert, she was at a place in her life where she knew, she understood in her bones, she would never, unless she chose to ever have to rely on anyone, especially a man for the rest of her life, that the men in her, her life up until that point served a purpose. And now she was free of them and that purpose. It's this unsung part of Mary's story that you really only understand when like you read the book and maybe you rewatch the movie and you're just really thinking a differently and trying to reframe Mary's relationship to men because Mary never felt weak to me. Mary never felt like she wasn't in control from a very young age. Mary was always fighting back. She always stood up to injustice, even when she was a little girl and came across an older guy beating up a dog. She wasn't a child that cowered. She was a child that pushed back. And it was in that pushback that I began to see Mary was never helpless at any point in her life. She wasn't getting married simply because she had no other choices. She had very few choices and she understood how to take the few choices that she had and make them work for her. And she did. Another important milestone in Mary's career happens in 1980 when Robert Redford casts her in the part of Beth in the film Ordinary People. This role was a departure for Mary and maybe even more departure in the minds of her fans. I remember riding with my parents in the car to go see the movie when it opened and my mom turned around and said, you know, Mary Tyler Moore is not funny in this. Almost as just a way to like couch my expectations. And I think probably all of America had those expectations. And yet Redford clearly saw something in Mary Tyler Moore that he thought could be activated by this role and that she could really fill in the role based on her own personal history and aspects of her life that maybe had been kept in a box to some extent up to that point. In terms of that character and that performance, what do you see that you feel opens up Mary Tyler Moore as a more fully fledged, fully rounded actor and also somebody that perhaps is not as concerned as she was earlier in her career about revealing through the, her portrayal aspects of her life that she had kind of kept hidden? It's funny. I think that had Robert Redford came into Mary's life or the Robert Redford's of the world decades earlier, Mary still would have, as a performer, exposed herself similarly. She just wasn't known for doing that in her performances up until that point. 
and the disaster of breakfast at Tiffany's, the choice she made to relinquish her approval rights, I think derailed those opportunities. When she says in the film, she says in an interview that, you know, Robert Redford, he knew that there was more. None of us can do the, you know, turning the world on with her smile 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's just such an absurd expectation. And I think it's a, like a genius movie. It's like casting Adam Sandler and Punch Drunk Love. Like sometimes you know that there's more to the former, but Adam Sandler, he doesn't have a problem typecasting himself in the films that he does. But I have seen glimpses of like dramatic talent within his body of work, especially when I watched Punch Drunk Love. I'm seeing a version of Adam Sandler that is honest to Adam Sandler, but the context has changed. Robert Redford just changed the context and gave Mary and the world an opportunity to see that version of Mary when she's short, when she's drunk, when she's upset and angry and tired. And I think Robert was offering us a chance that if you were to merge Laura Petri, Mary Richards, and the woman she played in Ordinary People, if you manage to merge all of those, you get the closest version of who Mary Tyler Moore is in real life. And yet even then, it's still artifice because yes, Mary was not funny in Ordinary People, but I think in real life, there are still moments of humor that were missed in a film like that because she is playing a character and on some level, the idea that when you're going through a great loss, that there are no moments of humor and laughter, or it's like, even when Mary was dealing with the loss of her son, she still had to balance that loss with the real joy that she experienced in life as well, which makes grief really difficult to navigate. But that's the reality, isn't it? It is. And I think ultimately she found a way to reveal as exactly as much of herself as she wanted to in her performances. I would agree with that. I think Mary was very much in control of how much of herself she wanted to reveal in any given performance. And she always held something back. But I think that was great for her performances that she held something back because it always kept you wanting more. Absolutely. And I'm wanting more, meaning I wish we could keep talking forever. But I wanted to just end with a quote from Lena Waithe at the end of the film where she says about Mary... And her legacy, she was meant to spark fire with a delicate match, which I think is just such a lovely poetic statement. And, and certainly that delicate match is not reflective of the steeliness of her character also, which I think you do a great job of showing both things. I also just on a personal note, want to thank you for sparking a rekindling of that fire that was Mary Tyler Moore. So thank you so much for the film and the way you approached it, which I think is really interesting, and for giving us all a chance to rediscover Mary Tyler Moore in all her brilliance. And thank you so much for sharing the last hour with me, which was a joy, and any opportunity I have to continue to share and celebrate Mary's legacy is an opportunity to jump out. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you've seen in the past or more recently that you think maybe doesn't get the recognition that it deserves? Ken, I do have that film and was actually fortunate enough to sit with Charles Burnett two weeks ago. 
the Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, I think massively exposes the raw, poignant beauty of everyday struggle, showcasing a side of the American dream and more specifically the American dream for black folk that's often overlooked. I think it's like a hauntingly authentic portrait of urban life that paints Burnett as the unsung auteur of African-America documentary cinema. 